0: a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have more eclectic conversations about astrology, as well as all things spiritual and personal development. Today's episode is a deeper invitation into sensing and perceiving the interconnectedness of everything, from the connection between celestial and earthly events, from ecology and sexuality, between our lives and the evolution of the cosmos and so much more. I interviewed Michael J. Morris and we discussed astrology, ecosexuality, Black Lives Matter, and liberation. I said it a few times in the episode, but the conversation was literally psychedelic in feeling to me. Michael speaks to us of connection and is themselves such a connector and I'm really excited to bring you into this conversation and into this connection field that was created. Michael J. Morris is a writer, an educator, a facilitator, an artist, a witch, an astrologer, and a tarot reader who supports folks in making meaning of their lives as a practice of personal and collective healing and liberation. They have a consulting practice called Co-Witchcraft Offerings, and they are also a visiting assistant professor at Denison University, where they teach in women's and gender studies, queer studies, and environmental studies. They hold a PhD in dance studies from the Ohio State University, and they bring decades of experience in movement and somatic practices, feminist and queer theory, and critical theories of embodiment to their work in astrology, tarot, and ritual. They are a practitioner of yoga, buto, and reiki, all of which inform their approaches to healing and liberation. Here's our conversation. everyone. I'm here with Michael J. Morris today to have a conversation about astrology and connection and ecosexuality. And to start out out with Michael, I would love to ask you about the name of your practice and um, why you named it that and how that connects to what you're doing.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful to be in conversation with you. and being in conversation is actually <clears throat> part of why my practice is called what it is. Um, so my consulting practice is called Co-Witchcraft Offerings. Um, and I, I started offering this work to people publicly um, in January 2019. And as I was preparing to share this work, um, which is specifically doing astrology and tarot readings, um, that are situated within ritual meditation practices um, to support people in making meaning of their lives, to support people in personal and collective healing and liberation. And as I was preparing to um, make these offerings available, I was thinking about like what's important to me, what is at the heart of this work? And words that were coming up for me were things like connection and collaboration and communion and cooperation and co-creation and also corporeality and continuity and contradictions and contentment and companionship and compassion. And it's a long list, (laughs) but the thing that a lot of these words, all of these words have in common is this prefix co and the etymology for the prefix co is <clears throat> with or together. And that's really at the heart of this work for me is um, that as we practice um, with others, with clients, um, but also just within these lineages, within these traditions of astrology and tarot and ritual and witchcraft and magic, that we are um, with Others um, We are doing the work with um, one another and and cultivating connection that I actually think is uh, the source of really potentially profound healing. Um, yeah, so that's where the that's where the name of the practice comes from.:
0: Beautiful. I love that, and it feels like connection is really something that I think we are just so deeply wired to crave and to be nourished by and that things flow differently when we're in connection. Um, so at like a philosophical level, like this isolation versus connection is something that I want to talk about with you today. And I think perhaps before getting into that, um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what brought you onto this path um, with astrology and some other modalities that you're connected with.
1: Yeah, I have. I have some. I mean, I can share about that and my journey and what brought me to this point. Um, I also, I don't want to lose this thought of um, the relationship between connection and also isolation that we're living in a moment where. Um, isolation and separation, by which I mean, in, under the conditions of COVID nineteen, but also the experience of loneliness um, and separation um, are now being recognized as health crises. Um, that there's such a pervasive sense of of loneliness and aloneness and isolation and separation, and I really think it's the source of so much of our. Disease ease is that is various experiences of disconnection um disconnection from the earth disconnection from ourselves from our bodies from our own complexity disconnection from our desires disconnection from ancestors disconnection from um, potential resources for liberation um, and so that's that idea of connection is really woven through all of the work um and it's gonna come up a lot as we're talking. Um, so how did I get here? <laughs> What's the story? What's the journey? Um, it's a long story. It's a complicated story. So, and I know there's a lot of other things we wanna talk about today. So I guess with the version that I can share today um, is that I was born and raised in a deeply uh, conservative evangelical Christian family in Louisiana. Um, and as I came to some kind of consciousness about my own queerness. Uh, and what would I would eventually, when I found the language, um, understand as my gender queerness. I felt intuitively, and by intuitively, I mean I don't even think I realized what I was doing as I was doing it, but I felt intuitively drawn to uh, other things that were forbidden or forbidden knowledge. Um, I think that as a queer kid who couldn't really accept or affirm my own desires, which also means I couldn't really accept or affirm myself, my body, um, because of the religious culture in which I was saturated, I already felt forbidden. And I think I went out seeking other forbidden places, forbidden knowledge, um, really in search of an experience of belonging. Um, and so that was witchcraft and that was witches and tarot and, uh, perhaps by extension some of some kind, um, feminism and eventually astrology as well. Um, all of these, uh, bodies of knowledge or practice, uh, that, um, were demonized in the culture that I grew up in. It's been a long journey to where I am now from that point, Um, but these practices—witchcraft and tarot and astrology—and also things like yoga and dance and reiki and reading and writing and learning and um, studying—these practices have supported and sustained me all these years. And at a certain point, especially in the, I think especially in the aftermath of the 2016 election and. Um, just the pervasive sense of political despair in our country and in the world. It felt like it was time to start making more resources for connection and healing available to people. And so that's when I launched my practice.
0: So how do you see astrology corresponding with connection? Mm -hmm.
1: Oh, That's such a great question um, because it's at the heart of it for me. Astrology is predicated on, this is sort of Chris Brennan's um, definition, but um, correlating celestial motion with earthly events. Um, Looking up at the sky and making a connection between what we see and our lived experiences here on earth. So at its basis, it is about forming some sort of meaningful connection between the earth and the sky. But I think it's bigger than that too. I think that astrology, it starts in that place of connecting to the sky, connecting to planets and stars and, um, a certain temporality or many temporalities, many unfoldments of time. Um, but it's also about being connected to this tradition that when we take up the tools of astrology, when we do this work, um, whether it's just with ourselves, but especially also with other people, we are connecting into thousands of years of cultural practice and tradition um, that originates in places like Mesopotamia and Egypt and Persia um, and eventually um, various parts of Europe, but also traditions coming from India and the Vedic tradition um, and really sky-watching, sky-omenology from all over the planet. And so we're connecting into that um, lineage, those traditions, we're connecting to the sky itself, to the planets, to stars, um, to motion and time. And then we're also, I think, connecting to more of ourselves. That's actually a big part of my um, perspective of astrology is that it has the capacity to introduce us to more and more of our own complexity. Um, That in the chart, in charts, in the birth chart, we are um, given so many directions and facets and layers of subtle and nuanced and complex information to, with which to describe our lives. And so when we practice astrology, especially, I guess I'm talking primarily natal astrology because that's what I practice, um, we're also building connections with ourselves with more of ourselves with more of our complexity. Yeah. I think that's, those are the things that come up in this moment um, around connection and astrology is the direct and indirect relationships to the sky, to um, the lineage, to the ancestry of this tradition, um, to the complexity of ourselves and then for those of us who are consulting astrologers connection to one another that when we come into the consultation space when we come into a reading that we are in some kind of relationship of reciprocity or mutuality Um, we are co-creating knowledge with one another um because it's never, it's never simply, I mean, some astrologers may practice this way, but I think the vast majority of us do not. Um, we don't just sit down and monologue to our clients that we are, um, in dialogue, that we are, we are bringing our understanding of the symbols and the archetypes of this tradition, um, and our, um, study and our expertise of these, of this language, um, this tradition, but then the client is bringing their expertise in their own lived and living experiences. And when those things come together, that is actually where astrology starts to make meaning. Um, And so there's also that that interpersonal connection that we cultivate. Um, I'm thinking a lot right now as a practice that has the potential to be a, a relationship of feminist care. Um, that's something I'm some thinking and writing that I'm doing right now. So it's sort of a new-ish thought. Um, but looking at the work of um, feminist theorists, Black feminist theorists like Patricia Hill Collins, um, but also folks like Bell Hooks, who've written a lot about um, care work um, in feminism and feminist ethics. And when I, when I read that work, I see so many connections to what we do in the consulting space as astrologers. So yeah, so all of those ways that I see connection happening in this practice.
0: I love uh, that as we're having this conversation, Mercury is in Cancer, and I feel like that the language is care with that. And Mm -hmm. something that I was also feeling into from your story, um, I was feeling like Scorpio for some reason, like feeling, you know, these experiences of transformation when you are born into a circumstance and you have a shift and how the experiences that we even have just in our personal life, um, expand our depth or capacity to hold other people's experiences, um, to empathize and to understand. And so I think that, you know, being a practicing astrologer, there's all these connections that I feel between my personal experiences and conversations and synchronicities with what's coming up in the lives of my clients. And I don't think that it's just me projecting myself. I think that it's actually about connection as well. And I'm really committed to personal development and like ongoing personal and spiritual development because that's how I can help people. So I think that with practicing astrology, it's, um, you're constantly making correlations, not just between the sky and what's happening here, but just the, as within, so without how to relate with people and, um, even just the other skill sets to give a good session. And, uh, Really reach someone with the astrology involves being able to have a connection with them to say you know share ideas that land. Mm-hmm. So it's such a beautiful practice, um, and I love the way that you speak about it. And um, so you're also a a writer and a theorist about ecosexuality, and I want to hear about just what that is as an introduction from your perspective. Um, and how it connects with, um, well, yeah, let's just start with that, what it is.
1: Yeah, can I say something um, a little bit more to what you were just saying about the correlation of our experiences with others? Please, I think yeah. I think that really quick. Um, yeah, I, I love what you're saying, that it is that it is about the correlation of of living experiences and celestial motion, but it's also the correlation or the connection between what I have lived through and my experiences and what our clients, what what they have lived through and what they are living through. Um, And so then correlation becomes a tool or a resource for empathy and for compassion. Um, and I think that's part of the ways in which, in which this work can be a practice of healing. And I know that not all astrologers approach astrology as healing work, Um, but even in that, just being with someone in their experiences has such an immense capacity um, for care and for healing.
0: Yeah, and there's, um, there's something in there about
1: Coming to voice and deep listening, that both of those things feel really important. That in the consulting space, um, in relation to the chart, in relation to the symbols and archetypes that we're articulating, we're also inviting people, our clients, to come to voice in and around their own experiences. I can't tell you the number of times that in a in a session someone has said something. And then commented, "I don't think I've ever said that out loud before, or I don't think I've ever had words for that before." So there's a there's a kind of empowerment that comes from coming to voice, but then also both me as an astrologer and the client with whom I'm working practicing this deep receptivity. So that's when you mentioned Scorpio, I was like, "Yes, the deep receptivity and attunement to." Um, actively receiving the other. Um, the listening cl- so closely that some word or thought or inflection that someone says then totally shifts or, or maybe just in small ways shifts how I understood what it was we were talking about. Um, and I think that that in the space of consulting, we're actually practicing ways of being in the world together. That there is a there's a practice of almost ethics in how do we relate to an other um, who is different from us. The, and this practice of giving space to come to voice and also the deep listening receptivity. I feel like those are tools or those are ways of being with one another that we don't always have a lot of opportunities to practice. And so then the consulting space becomes a place where we can practice. Um being with one another in those ways. And maybe that relates to ecosexuality. Let's see. So, ecosexuality was the topic of my doctoral work. So I have a PhD in dance studies from the Ohio State University. um, And I wrote a dissertation called um, what is the name, the title of my dissertation: Material Entanglements with the um, non-human world, um, ecosexualities in performance. And so I was really looking at this emerging framework um, of ecosexuality and the ways in which there are artists, specifically in that in that work, performing artists, who um, show us something about the entanglement of ecology and sexuality. And so that's sort of the basis of my definition of ecosexuality. My working definition is that ecosexuality is a framework for recognizing the ways in which all sex and sexuality and sexual practices are already ecological and for considering the ways <clears throat> in which ecological relations are deeply erotic or sexual even. And that's the, that's the sort of basis of the framework. And then it gives us a tool or a way of looking and thinking that reveals um, parts of our, our bodies, of our world, that maybe we weren't sensitized to before, um, but now we have a, a lens or a framework through which to, to look at it. And there's a lot of ways that I bring people into thinking about ecosexuality. Um, would that be useful right now?
0: Yeah, I would love to hear some examples of the connection between sexuality and ecology as you were speaking of.
1: Great. I I love talking about this, um, by which I mean I teach courses on this now and I, um, I was about to say I travel all around the world talking about ecosexuality. not so much lately because of the pandemic, but, um, yeah. So, so examples of the ecological entanglements of our sexuality. Um, so simple material things to start with. Um, is like the human microbiome—the idea or the real the recognition that what we think of as our human bodies are actually populated with um, innumerable numbers of other species, bacteria and fungi and viruses and protozoans and like even the mitochondria inside our own cells have DNA that's distinct from human DNA. Um, so the body is already an ecosystem. It's already so much more biologically, physiologically, so much more than human. And so then if we realize that, then every sexual encounter that we have with ourselves, with our own bodies, but also with others, other people's bodies is already a vast multi-species affair. So um, if you kiss someone, there are hundreds of species of bacteria in that person's mouth um, that are present in that erotic exchange. And that number um, gets larger the the further down the body we move in terms of of more than human life that populate the space of what we think of as our human body. Um, So that's already like just at the site of the body itself. Um, Sex and sexuality is already deeply... um, ecological in its intra-relations, the kind of interior space. And then there's the ecological effects of our sexual practices. So things like if you use any sort of sexual protection barrier, like a dental dam or finger cuts or gloves or condoms, um, very likely those things end up in a trash can, um, which then makes its way to a landfill somewhere. So then our sexual practices have direct and indirect implications for the metabolic load of some ecosystem somewhere else. Um, We can also think about birth control pharmaceuticals um, and the ways in which those get urinated into water supplies um, to the point where those pharmaceuticals are now the most prevalent man-made molecule in ecosystems all over the planet saturating these, these ecosystems to the point that now other species like amphibians are starting to mutate because of the concentration of, um, of chemical hormones in water, for example. Um, and I don't say that with any sort of moralizing of like, we should or shouldn't be doing this. It's just uh, tracking the relation that already exists um, between human sexual liberation Um, giving people the tools and resources in order to um, experience their own um, sexual freedom that has direct and indirect implications for more than human life in ecosystems all over the planet. We can also think about things like um, the relationship between our sexual practices and energy industries. So um, if you've ever watched video pornography on any of your devices, your computer, your phone, or whatever, That techno-stimulated orgasm or pleasure or desire has a direct relationship to things like coal mining and wind farming um, because you're using electricity in order to um, get aroused, get off, etc. And that's also true of things like vibrators that we plug into walls or vibrators that we replace the batteries. Those batteries end up in landfills and so on. Um, and that's just scratching the surface. That's just like very basic practical ways in which our sexual practices, um, both intra and interrelationally, are already deeply ecological. And, and I find that a lot of people, there's an, an, an initial resistance to thinking about this. So, or sometimes there's like shock, like, how have I never thought about this before? Um, And then also the idea that our sex and our sexualities are already populated by relations with the more than human, Um, there tends to be a resistance, a kind of um, discomfort or grossed out, or I just don't want to acknowledge that. And I think that's quite important that recognizing the discomfort or the dis-ease around acknowledging the ecological relations of our sex and sexual practices, I think is evidence of a persistent um, anthropocentrism and human exceptionalism that really becomes the basis of so much uh, violence and exploitation and domination Um, and oppression on our planet, by which I mean the exploitation and violence against the more than human world, um, the ways in which humans uh, situate ourselves as both different from and also more important than everything else on this planet, such that everything then becomes um, available for our consumption and use. So that's the persistence of human exceptionalism. But then we can see how that same anthropocentrism and human exceptionalism um, feeds into uh, systemic oppression like racism, um, that the, the transatlantic slave trade depended upon the uh, transforming the lives of African and African-American people, black and brown people into something less than human. And so our, the, the, the already existing violent relationship of anthropocentrism and human exceptionalism that structures domination of the more than human world then gets transposed onto human lives who are made less than human. And I guess I'll pause to take a breath there because I could keep talking all day just one minute.
0: Well, hearing you describe that really like uh, all encompassing mood that I was feeling was like a psychedelic, if you can call that a mood, because there's all these connections that you're making between things that we don't normally think of. And I think of it too, in terms of, um, different places I might be at spiritually where I'm in prayer with my food and food has this kind of aura around it, or I pray with the water and I have this different relationship to it versus when there's been periods where it's almost more of an inert object and this kind of rampant like objectification or this seeing of the world around us as not alive that trees don't have consciousness they don't you know have brains and think like us like that kind of conditioning that we receive um early on to just kind of think as things uh, as less than Mm -hmm. versus like uh, the sensitivity I feel that opens up when we really feel bonded and we feel connected to the beauty of the world around us and all the intricate uh, complexity. I think that it, Uh, It could inspire like a more tender and caring way of existing, um, having a relationship of tending to and being in service versus this kind of numbness, this desire for more, this greed that I think can come from feeling so disconnected and so numb that there's that need for more and more and more. Um, And so trying to kind of get that from the external world in some way versus like, if we're really sensitized to what we're already in connection with, I think that that might change how we operate in the world.
1: I agree so much with what you're saying. Um, Yeah, I actually think it transforms our understanding of um, something like personhood or um, yeah, what it means to be a person. Um, such that it is no longer possible to think of ourselves as mm, autonomous, separate individuals. When we recognize that we are deeply constituted within these countless relations, um, it's a kind of decentering of the human individual and and all the you know all the problems. <laughs> that come with this hyper individualism of like, I am in control of my own life and my own destiny. And it's like, no, we are, we are deeply, um, I think you used the word um, bonded with, like bound to this world, this cosmos, that's so much bigger than us. Um, and that the more we can acknowledge and feel and experience those relationships of of a relational constitution, by which I mean we are formed and created and made and sustained with and in these relations. The more we can acknowledge that, um, yeah, I think the more available uh, uh, ethical care and responsibility, um, yeah, those things become more available to us. Um, and also, there's something in there about uh, addressing that, those experiences of isolation and loneliness and um, separation and despair? What if we allowed more relations to matter? And I'm thinking about that in terms of ecosexuality, but also in terms of astrology. What if more relations? could be thought of as significant. Uh, Donna Haraway uses this term. Donna Haraway is a feminist biologist. Um, She uses this term, I think it's in the Companion Species Manifesto, um, that she introduces the term significant otherness and kind of playing with this idea of significant others. But of course, we tend to think of our significant others as primarily human people in whom, with whom we have some sort of romantic or sexual attachment, erotic investment? Um, and what if more relations could take on that potential of significant otherness? What if we could have significant relations with the sky, with the planets, um, which we cultivate in the practice of astrology? What if we could have significant, abiding, life-affirming relationships with the earth, with the water and the fire and the air, like these elements that are sacred uh, to me within uh, my witchcraft traditions. And of course, we're already in those relations. So it's about how do we allow those relations to come to matter to us in more significant ways. And once we do that or when we're doing that, because I think it's a process, um, do we experience less loneliness, separation, isolation, despair? Because we recognize that we were, in fact, never alone. We were never alone. The whole sky and the whole earth has been present with my entire life, your entire life. Um, So then loneliness becomes almost like a lie that we've believed that's rooted so deeply in this insistent individualism. And all of this relates, comes together for me in a word, um, kinship. That For me, these traditions, these practices, um, ecosexuality as an emergent framework, um, something that's like fairly recent although it has roots in older traditions or old, um, older perspectives like ecofeminism and eco-womanism and um, queer ecologies queer ecological studies feminist biology things like that um, it's still like something that's fairly within the last couple of decades last 12 years 12 13 years um, that it starts to emerge Ecosexuality and astrology as an ancient tradition for forming kinship relations familial, familiar relationships with the more than human world. Um, And then while you were talking, I also reached for a book because something you were saying was like, Oh, this is um, resonating with something else um, of the um, making connections that we don't usually think about. Um, And this is from Angela Davis's freedom is a constant struggle. It's an essay called feminism and abolition. And she says, let me find this. She says, feminist methodologies impel us to explore connections that are not always apparent, and they drive us to inhabit contradictions and discover what is productive in these contradictions. Feminism insists on methods of thought and action that urge us to think about things together that appear to be separate. Things like ecology and sexuality or things like the motion of planets and our lives here on Earth. Like, so think things together that appear to be separate and also to disaggregate things that appear to naturally belong together. And that's the, uh, the quote from Angela Davis. And I think both of those things are, is work that we are doing in these fields and in these practices of what does it mean to be able to make a connection, a correlation, um, recognize a relationship between things that, given the dominant cultural paradigm or our own social conditioning or just our own limited experiences of the world, we can't yet perceive, we don't yet realize that there's a connection or a relationship there. Um, And Angela Davis is among many feminists and especially black feminists who insist that feminism is more than just, it's about more than just women. It's about more than just gender. In fact, that there are ways of thinking and ways of practicing that are feminist. Um, and it's a much longer conversation probably than can fit in this episode. Um, but I just wanted to bring that in because I think it's, um, ne- I think it's a really exciting, realization that things that we are doing in astrology in these um adjacent experiences like ecosexuality um resonate with, have roots within, um, have potential connections to, um established bodies of thought like feminism and black feminism especially.
0: We should definitely have you back on the podcast. <laughs> There's a Aww. lot to talk about. But um, while you were speaking, one of the things that came through for me was thinking about the, the quality of, again, psychedelic, but here literally psychedelic experiences based on what planetary transits that are happening in the world or um, personally. And there was some research with Richard Tarnas and Stanislav Grof where they were doing LSD psychotherapy research at Esalen in either the 70s or the 80s. I forget. But they were not using astrology as a method and they couldn't find a predictive tool for Predicting the content of a person's trip, they could give the same dose the same day to two different people, same environment, same setting, but the people would have wildly different experiences and an astrologer passed through Esalen and suggested to them like you should uh, learn about astrology and see what transits these people are having. And so they did all this research basically about different kinds of emotional feeling tones that come through people's psychedelic trips, different patterns based on the planetary alignment. So when you're having a Saturn transit, you can feel kind of like you're being squeezed through a tunnel, like you have those more no exit, kind of like I'm going to die feeling situations. Whereas if you're having like a Uranus transit, you feel liberated, you're having a Eureka moment or you understand suddenly why you've experienced the difficulties in your life that you have or Neptune, you feel this like peace and redemption and connection. So even that sense of like, So the other thought that I was connecting to that was that when we wake up to our connection to the earth, if we're coming from a place of kind of slumber within that, where we're in this disconnected mindset, we might wake up into this glorious, beautiful Garden of Eden kind of situation, or we can wake up into, uh, this situation of feeling, um, so heartbroken and so devastated, like we 're making contact with um, things that you know people uh, geological features, the water like this whole like living thriving or not so thriving earth that we have lost connection with. So thinking about this awakening process is actually having like a lot of different emotions attached to it based on maybe even the timing of when the awakening happens. By the way, when, when I said garden of Eden, that metaphor, I saw like a response in your face. And so I was like, uh, let me get clear about what I mean by that. Cause I don't know, you know what connotations I'm talking about this kind of sense of like, being in paradise, but uh, the Garden of Eden can have different connotations. So,
1: sure, yeah, and obviously, like because of my upbringing, I have some baggage with that. But <laughs> really, it's more um, my the my, yes. There was a response to my faith. It's more comes from um, the work of uh, deep ecologists and um, people working around climate collapse, um, insisting that um, the the sort of idyllic, um, pastoral, um, almost romanticized view of the earth, um, not only is something that we will never return to, but it also never existed. Like that there has always been a, um, there will be no return to Eden. There was no Eden um, is like a a kind of rhetoric in in, in these um, environmental studies, ecological studies. Um, work. And it's part of, it's part of, yeah, this big emotional, um, content of the awakening is recognizing, um, moving through some kind of disillusionment of what we wanted the earth to be, um, and what the earth has been and what we have done with and to the earth, um, that there's, there's an awakening to quite a lot of suffering, um, in that process. And, Yeah, so that was that was that response of um, how can we hold the experience that um, that the earth was is not will not be um, this idealized um, fantasy, but also perhaps it never was. Um, And again, that's like a whole other big conversation about how these fantasies for. for a kind of idealized earth um, facilitated the domination and exploitation of the earth. Um, this like Garden of Eden in which humans have authority, for example. So there's a yeah, there that's a bigger conversation. But that was what that yeah. was what my friend was doing.
0: <laughs> I'll have to think of that image because uh, yeah, I, I I like to say what I mean as best as I can. And then you hear more information about an image and it changes things. But, um, there was something that I was wondering about and I'm losing my train of thought.
1: It's a lot going on right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is what it was. Was the sense that it feels like there's a, a crisis in connection, as you were saying, like this loneliness. But I think also the, the consequences of the numbing and of the disconnection creates um, a backlog of things to account for when coming back into connection. Uh, same could be said if at an individual personal level, we ignore the needs of our bodies and of our souls for like um, years and then suddenly we're faced with the consequences of, you know, putting ourselves through an experience that was harmful to us and we weren't aware of that. So I think that part of the, um, what I have kind of gained from meditating on ecosexuality, and, um, also just from hearing you talk about it in this last, um, moment in time is the sense that there's kind of like a, uh, a call to the heart to to engage and be open and to embrace certain things in our experience that um, we could choose to you know close our heart to, but that is basically what is perpetuating the violence that we see on the planet.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree.
0: So, are there other connections between um, astrology and ecosexuality? Mm -hmm. that are worth or that we should name
1: i mean i guess the one that feels that we've probably named but just to crystallize it or concentrate it is that both are ways of cultivating um, connection with the more than human world um cultivating deep intentional and attentional relations to that which is more than human and in these two in these two areas it's for me, of the earth and the sky. Um, It's that allowing more relations to matter that we were talking about. I think it's, um, yeah, both getting more intimate with the earth, getting more intimate with the sky, cultivating kinship and familiarity with the earth and sky. For me, I experience it as as a shift in temporality in... A, a very uh felt embodied sense of a different way of being in time um that ecologists um geologists actually i think is where it came from um use this term of deep time um which is like millions and billions of years that we can't really fathom at the scale of our human bodies like that, that we that number, like we can kind of think of the number, but we don't really know that feeling of like what does it feel like to exist for billions of years. And I think that doing the work of astrology and for me, doing the work of ecosexuality has invited me into some version of a felt experience of a deeper sense of time. Um, which feels really necessary uh, always. And also right now, like I'm thinking about um, Adrienne Murray Brown writes in Emergent Strategy that when we're faced with a world of so many urgent crises, like the collapse of the climate, like the ongoing violence against black and brown people in the United States that we're confronting in a massive way right now um the ongoing misogyny and sexism the various ways that imperialism continues to um function throughout um, a global economy and so on like all these crises that we're faced uh, with that feel so urgent it can feel like the response the only response is also this like fast urgent um reaction and adrienne marie brown writes and we forget that it's, it was urgency thinking that brought us to these points of crisis. And perhaps the solutions, or I can't remember her exact wording, I think it's solutions, but it might be like the resources are in the deep, slow, intentional work. And that's part of what I experience when I doing astrology when i'm when i 'm um, becoming more intimate with with the earth beneath and the sky above that is this slowing down which doesn't I want to be really clear does not mean we don't do anything um, it actually propels me into a longer sense of the work of Responding to crisis, of addressing injustice, of working towards more justice and liberation, um, and letting go of the need to see the results in order to do the action. Like that's something that astrology teaches us so well, is that each of our lives begin at, at a point within um, many. Cycles of time, many planetary cycles, some of which we will see um, many times, like lunar orbits or solar cycles, for example, um, some of which we'll see a few of, like the Saturn cycles. Um, And then we get to Uranus and Neptune and Pluto, and um, very few of us, probably most of us, will not see full cycles of these planets. And so what does it mean to be at ease with doing the work of responding to this world that we're awakening to, um, responding to crisis, responding to injustice with deep, slow, intentional work that contributes to the movement towards liberation and justice without having to see the outcome? Um, That's something that Angela Davis has spoken on as well is... Um, It's actually a kind of temporality of capitalism to say, I need to see the results right now. Um, And what if the value of doing the work of justice and liberation is not measured uh, within the lifespan of one life or even one generation? What if the work of justice and freedom and liberation is across many generations And our job, our responsibility is to become accountable to that suffering that we are awakening to, to respond and to do the work without, um, without the motivation for the work being, I need, I need to see the outcome. Yeah. So, I think that's a, yeah, I would say, what was your question? Connect on any other connections between ecosexuality and astrology is that both for me have been ways of attenuating to this deeper experience of time and duration and slowness that allows me to show up in the world in a different way, I think.
0: That's really profound. Um, Dean Rudjar has written about astrological aspects and the planetary phases. And one of the the things he was saying was that the birth chart is a moment of the unfolding of the cosmos. So the person is living out this moment, but the moment is part of the bigger scheme of the entire cosmos. And so all of our personal issues that we work through at a personal psychological level are at the macro scale, a process that's unfolding within earth or within the cosmos. And so when you have um, movements of consciousness that are happening at this big uh, scale, people have their own individual aspects of it. And so the work that we do within ourselves is part of that bigger tapestry. Um, And as you're saying that it's not necessarily a result that we get to see in our unique uh, individual incarnated lifetime, but that it's something uh, that is a bigger process. And I think even that has, um, like, I can feel a little bit of romanticism in it personally, just from the sense of, like, feeling that your life has uh, value beyond, you know, that you're in service or you're participating with something much vaster. Um, and to actually kind of give oneself fullheartedly to that. And as you're saying, without the need to get like a prize at the end, <laughs> that you did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear maybe some more things that you've discovered personally have helped you connect more with the cosmos, with the earth, like some some moments of transformation or awakening or practices that have contributed to that.
1: Mm. Yeah, I I guess the first thing that comes to mind is that these are processes that I am still in that have been unfolding for many years that it's um it's difficult to point to a single moment of transformation um and more that the change that I've experienced in my life, the transformation I've experienced has come out of ongoing practice, ongoing process. Um, so, like when I when I talk about astrology as a, a um, practice of making kinship with the sky, how do you do that? How do you how do you become um, familiar or familial, or how do you come into a relationship of significant otherness with the sky? And for me, it's well, waking up every day and looking at charts and looking at the sky and giving my attention and my time and my um, energy to that relationship—it's um, for me—it's daily meditation practices with the planets um, according to the planetary days, which usually takes the form of mantra, um, but also um, in some of my work it takes the form of embodied explorations, like movement practices, um, usually improvisational in nature. Um, but what does it mean to embody Venus on Friday, for example? And what does it feel like to embody the moon, the lunar, on Monday? And can I connect to the assertive, activating parts of myself in movement, uh, connecting to Mars on Tuesday and so on? Um, so building practices that make the relationship with the sky more significant in my life because of the time and energy and attention that I'm giving it. And similarly, the relating to the earth, um, which takes lots of different forms in my life, I guess. Um, but the, most, the one that feels the most pronounced is that, for me, the, the framework around all of this is uh by all of this, I guess I mean ecosexuality and astrology and the other things I do, like tarot and um Reiki and other healing modalities. It's kind of all around uh witchcraft. Witchcraft becomes almost like a, a carrier bag for all of it. Um, and also witchcraft has been um an abiding practice in my life throughout all of these developments as I came into consciousness around ecosexuality as I um, became serious in my devotion to studying astrology. Um, and so for me, witchcraft every day involves some form of directed, intentional, even ritualized relationship with the more than human, with the elements of air and fire and water and earth, um, not as symbols, not as ideas, but as material relations within my own body and within the world around me so that whenever I'm cultivating a devotional relationship with the air, um, I'm connecting, I'm making sacred that my breath, that which animates me, also animates all life on this earth. So that by tuning into that, I am allowing that relation to the air Is not an element like an object. Air is an element that's a relation, and so is fire. The heat within my own body, um, the spark of metabolism within every cell, is the is ignited by the light of the sun. Like it's this complex thermodynamic process that unfolds through the light of this life giving star, um, unfolding through many lives, making its way to sustain my life and the warmth and the heat that I can feel emanating off of my body, even as I say these things and the water as a relation that flows in and out connecting me to the land where I live that, um, like I think often water is maybe an easy one to think about in terms of kinship because we use this language of being related by blood to people. And I often think about being related by water that I am connected The water that flows along the land in Ohio, where I live, is within my body. I am related materially by water. It is a material relationship. Um, And same with the earth, the minerals of my bones, which is like the bedrock of my body, but also the bedrock of the planet, um, that those minerals are shared. It is a relation um, that I practice making significant to myself in ritual, in magical work, in meditation, in movement practices. And then also just going outside. Um, And I don't want to romanticize being outside as somehow more natural than being inside. Um, I think that's a false dichotomy. But um, part of what going outside invites me to do is pay attention to more that is more than human and outside of my control, like within my space, within my home space, which I love my home space, but it's, you know, it's highly curated. I'm surrounded by, um, art and books and fabrics that I love that I brought into this space. And when I go into the outdoors, I'm moving into a more complex and unpredictable world. Um, and in the outdoors, it's often as simple as, and this is actually maybe not simple, um, slowing down, paying attention and listening. And by listening, I don't just mean orally. I mean um, a kind of whole-bodied listening to the world around me. Um, how do we allow more relations to come to matter? Um, by giving them our attention. Which also, I mean, I can't say that out loud, Make it allowing more relations to matter um, without recognizing that we're in a moment of extreme uprising around... The mattering of Black lives and making Black lives matter, um, and how do we how do we make Black lives matter? Because right because right now in the United States, but also probably in many ways globally, Black lives do not yet matter. Black lives have been made disposable, expendable, repeatedly. Um, so, how do we make a world in which Black lives matter? I think it's by directing our attention, our all of these things we've been talking about in terms of correlation and connection and empathy and compassion, directing those attentional resources repeatedly to the lives of Black people, um, to the work of Black people, to the contributions to our, that make our world even possible and also better. Um, and so I'm talking about these ecological relations, but I think there's a, a really um, prescient correlation to the movement that we're seeing take place in the United States right now. And then I realized that I think, I think you asked um, transformative moments, and then I talked about a bunch of processes, and it's worth acknowledging, actually it almost feels like my responsibility to acknowledge um, that while I think these transformations do unfold in process and in practice over time. Um, there are moments of initiation in which that process gets started or began. And for me, I think it was 2009 when I met um, two artists named Elizabeth Stevens and Annie Sprinkle. Um, and I went to San Francisco and I was interviewing them about their work, and they were working on ecosexuality um, within the context of a larger um seven year performance art project called the Love Art Laboratory um and in 2008 they married the earth um they took the earth as their lover um and as a way of, a, 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 in a giant performance art wedding in Santa Cruz um and that was the start of their ecosex work their ecosexuality work um which then, de- then developed over many years and became the focus of my dissertation. They were the first artists that I wrote about in my dissertation, but I've also had the opportunity to now collaborate with them um, in many ways. We, we married the mountains together in Athens, Ohio. We married the sun together in San Francisco in 2011. We've co authored um, uh, writing together. Uh, And in no small way, like even though my whole life wasn't changed in the moment when Beth and Annie started talking about ecosexuality, that moment changed the direction of my life, changed the course of my life to the point where now my entire graduate studies work, my doctoral work, and now my career as a professor um, has been uh, following this path of ecosexuality and the all of the other currents that come in and out of that trajectory
0: wow i'm just like super moved (laughs) listening to that Mm. it's you know it's interesting too like we had a phone conversation yesterday just to, like, I like to talk with people before the interview, um, oftentimes. And, um, you had mentioned something about, um, is it, do you mind me like retelling?
1: I think <laughs> if everything I said yesterday is fine, to be honest, right? I don't know what you're about to say. I'm on the edge of my seat, but whatever I said yesterday, yeah, you can share it.
0: It was just that you said that you went to the ecosexuality event kind of you didn't think that eco-sexuality is what you were looking for and you were feeling like, you know, this isn't, uh, you were like feeling like frustrated, like that wasn't what you wanted. And then you had a a mindset shift where you're like, what if this is the key? Yeah. Um, I forget the phrasing that you used.
1: Yeah. I had gone to, I'd gone to San Francisco to interview Beth and Annie about love and art that they were in this seven year love art lab project. And I was really, I wanted to understand how art could be a practice of love and how love could be embodied in our art. And all they would talk about was eco-sexuality. And yeah, I was confused. I was frustrated. It's like I wanted wanted the answers to be different. And then there was a moment where I considered after the first day, because I was there for a couple of days interviewing them. At the end of the first day, I went back to where I was staying and I... Gave myself some space and thought. What if the these are actually the answers to my questions? Like I'm asking questions about art and love, and the answers I'm getting are about ecosexuality. What if ecosexuality is the answer to the questions that I'm asking? Um, yeah, and that was that shift for me that you're describing.
0: Well, I went on to have a whole experience yesterday because of you sharing that story, which I feel like is evidence of like the nature of connection. But um, I had a group call last night and I was starting to entertain feelings of like, maybe I should quit this group. Like, I don't know. And I'm like, where is this resistance coming from? Like, is it my truth wanting to like be free or is there something that I'm resisting? You know, I was confused and I thought about like our conversation popped into my mind. I was like, what if I treat this like it is the key? And I went on to do the homework for the group that I hadn't done yet. And as I'm reading the book chapters, it was literally talking about like everything that was happening in my life. Like I hadn't done the homework yet and my life had already been doing the homework for me in my experience. So I'm reading the chapters and I'm like having a nearly psychedelic experience reading them. But it talks about this woman who's the author saying that someone came to her workshop and was feeling like she just kept pressing her for questions like, you know, I want this, I want this. And that what the person was asking for was actually what the workshop was giving, but the person couldn't see it because they were so... You know, so that like vignette was there, but it also in the book was talking about what if everyone you meet is offering you a gift and all you have to do is be open to receive it. And it was just mind blowing to me that because of our conversation and because of the way that your words popped up in my brain at that moment, when I was trying to make a decision, uh, I had a much different experience. Um, and so I think that there's a way like we're in Gemini season as well. And I think that like the word can be super alchemical. Um, but I just wanted to share that because I think that, um, there is the, this magical quality of being in connection when we have conversations about things um and i think too um i appreciate you bringing up black lives matter as well because there's it feels like um this has been going on but there's something different there's like a tipping point energy of what's happening right now and i think it's calling upon a lot more white people specifically to care more and to uh, Feel it within themselves, and to feel this kind of like the uprising within themselves, um, and what that means for you know checking in with how they are related and where where we have been um, like racist, even though we don't want to think that we are like going through that disillusionment process, right? And um, actually studying and like learning about anti racism and starting to do that repair work within ourselves um, so that we can create in the world in a much different way instead of business as usual.
1: Mm -hmm. Agreed.
0: Um, This has been such a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your ideas and the way that you see things and the connections that you make and the connections that you make that are now like Uh, creating this whole other web of connections through this podcast Um, what are some ways that people can find and work with you and any action steps that you would recommend at this moment in time Hmm.
1: thanks yeah i feel so enlivened by this conversation and the things that um, the connections we're making the conversation as the site of that connection and there's um, you use the word the magical quality. And I think in a sense, this is magic. There's a, and I think this is about um, consultations as well. Like there's a way in which every consultation and, in a, and maybe in an even broader sense, every conversation could be an act of magic, um, a spell in a sense, um, in that they make more things possible. The things that we said yesterday on the phone Made something possible in a different way. Later in the day, the things we're saying now may make something possible in the days ahead that weren't wasn't possible for me, for you, for whoever is whomever is listening to this. Um, and so there is that you use the word the alchemical possibility of the word, and I think it's the things we say have the ability to make. Um, shape shape what becomes more or less possible, um, which is why I think it's so crucial um, for us to, as astrologers, to think about what we are saying and how we are saying it in the consultation space, and also inviting the voice of our clients to be in that co-creative space. So how can people? How you ask me? How can people work with me? Find me. Um, the best place is my website. Which is Michael J um, That's where people can book consultations with me, um, and there's a lot of writing about my practice and how I approach these these practices these traditions, these practices. Um, people can follow me on Instagram at Co Witchcraft Offerings, and at least for now, I've been posting for almost a year now. Been posting daily astrology writing, um, and that feels like a practice that I feel, at, at least for now, feel devoted to. And it's a way of making this work available to people in, in a form that's free, um, that not everyone has the time or the space or the resources to book a consult. Um, but astrology sh- should, I guess I'm going to say that, should be available as a resource to more people, um, as a way of making meaning of our lives. Um, and so I post that on Instagram every day right now. Um, and then I'm on Twitter at Morris Michael J. Uh, but in terms of actions, I mean, I'm always booking consults, consultations if that's work that folks want to do. Um, I would love to work with people. Um, I work on a sliding scale in recognition of income inequality in order to make this work more available to more people. And I, offer, I also offer free sessions or sessions free of charge for um, people of color, indigenous and First Nations people um, as an act of reparation. Um, and that all of, the, all of the free sessions for June 2020 are already booked or full, um, but I have a waiting list for July started. So that's if people wanna work with me, but I actually, I would love to work with people if that would be useful for them. Um, the thing that the work that I want us to be doing or that I wanna promote or ask, encourage people to do is the work of justice and liberation. And that, as you said, there's this tipping point energy right now. It feels like we're living within a profound moment of possibility um, with a large scale activation and awakening to systemic oppression and uh, concentrated violence against black and brown people in the United States. Um, and this moment, like you were saying with Rudyar, this moment is part of a larger movement um, and now is, I think, I think now is the time to find our places within the movement toward liberation. Um, I'm thinking a lot about Fannie Lou Hamer said, Nobody's free until everybody's free. Um, and Angela Davis, in that text I was referencing earlier, teaches us that freedom is a constant struggle, which is actually a quote from a song that was sung in the Black freedom movement in the 19th or in the 20th century. And so, what I want to promote for folks, especially um, other white folks is to radicalize ourselves um, and to get to work struggling for the freedom of those who are most oppressed. And that can take so many forms. Um, Movement is made of many currents and find yours, find ours, protest, educate ourselves, make art and magic and policy, make demands on our public officials vote look around our own lives and the work we're doing and ask what can I be doing differently in order to address the systemic racism, inequality and inequity in this country that whatever you're doing, whether you're a university professor or an astrologer or wherever else you do your work, what could be done differently in order to create more possibility for justice and liberation? Because what we've been doing (laughs) all of us in our own ways. What we've been doing hasn't been working. So it's time to ask what could I be doing differently with the understanding that we must do something differently. And then maybe the thing I wanna emphasize the most, and you already mentioned it, is educating ourselves, studying, learning. Um, I think that's one of, I think that's the responsibility of anti-racist work um, is to recognize that especially we white people it isn't a question of whether you are or are not racist, like get over it, get past it. We are part of a, yeah, (laughs) we are part of a racist system from which we benefit whether or not we wanted to, and that benefit we call privilege, and that privilege depends upon the oppression of black and brown people. So we are part of the problem, which means it's our responsibility to generate solutions And one way we can do that is by centering the voices of black and brown people in our lives and learning from the labor that's already been done. So my recommendations, I'm not going to give a full reading list here because I've been doing that on the social medias and thing. but read black feminist writers like Angela Davis, Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, Patricia Hill Collins, Kimberly Crenshaw. Adrienne Marie Brown, Alexis Pauline Gums, Kianga Yamada Taylor. These are my starting points. You might find other starting points. Those are great places to start. Um, learn about restorative justice and transformative justice and community accountability models that function as already function as alternatives to police and prison. That's something that's coming up a lot right now is like, okay, we'll abolish prisons, abolish the police. What are we going to do instead? In fact, people have already been doing the work of developing models for other ways of being in collectivity and community together. So if those words are new, If you're listening to this and those words are new to you, restorative justice, transformative justice, community accountability, it's time to do some work. It's time to do some research and educate ourselves on those things. Learn about the prison abolition movement. And a lot of people... Frankly, my, my community, my circle of uh, friends are a lot of readers, academic folks, but not everyone is. Not everyone wants to sit down and read an essay on black feminist thought or prison abolition. So if you're a more visual or audio person, a starting point is Ava DuVernay's um, documentary 13th on the 13th mm-hmm. Amendment. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. and I just heard this morning, I don't know how long this will be true, but it's f- streaming free on YouTube right now. Uh, but it's also on Netflix, and most people have a Netflix account. Um, but And along with 13th, I highly recommend the documentary Major about the life and work of a Black transgender activist and elder, Miss Major Griffin Gracie, um, which was directed by Annalise Ophelian, um, because, in fact, the lives of Black transgender people are the most targeted, um, the most um, violated in our country um, and we can learn quite a lot about the whole how the whole system of oppression functions by studying and understanding and listening to the lives and, and experiences of those who occupy those most um, oppressed positions, those who live at the intersection of multiple um, axes of oppression. And so that's just... Some, some suggestions, especially if we're just beginning to wake up to the lived experiences of black and brown people in this country. It's really time for us as white folks to educate ourselves and alongside or even more than booking a concert with me. That's what I want to promote for folks.
0: Thank you so much for those resources.
1: If you need more, contact me. I, I have many resources. But then actually something I said on another podcast, on the Homebody podcast, um, that should be coming out uh, on June 4th to SMART, um, is in addition to looking, if you need more resources, look at who these people are citing So, like, if you read a book by Angela Davis, who is Angela Davis citing? Who is she talking about? There, you already have your next book. If you are reading something by Bell Hooks, who is she referencing? Great, go read that person. So, in fact, Black feminists have already done the labor of laying out entire curriculums of self-education if we follow the pathways and the trajectories that they've already laid out for us. That's a great
0: point. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you find one resource and then you can track it to the whole web, the whole ecology.
1: Exactly. All the connections are already there.
0: Thank you so much for uh, joining me on the podcast. This has been wonderful.
1: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, this conversation was amazing. I walk away from it with a deeper sense of connection and I'm curious what you think too. Please leave a comment on Instagram or wherever you see this posted on social media. Tag us. Let us know what you think of the episode. Michael brings in a really great point too about the, the timing of how things progress in this reality and how we can both have a sense of urgency but also really look into how can we create lasting grounded change and knowing that we are a part of these massive cycles that are bigger than us and that we have some devotional responsibility to participate in collective liberation regardless of whether or not um, we get to see the results of our efforts but we still are here to participate in that storyline and we are at this transformational moment this tipping point I think that what I'm seeing is a lot of people waking up to a greater level of responsibility for increasing the levels of justice on the planet and discovering within themselves how they have been complicit within a systemically racist world. I think there's a huge level of grief and anxiety rippling through the country, if not the world, Um, a disillusionment for many of like, what does it mean to be in America? What is this country? And this isn't even new information, but I think that there's a new level of it penetrating people's hearts and penetrating people's psychological defenses that normally keep out this information or normally numb us to this information. So there's, um, there's something big happening and may we be affected by it. May we be influenced by it. And may we be in this for the long haul, um, these oppressive systems were not created overnight. They have hundreds of years and while there may be an accelerated, uh, evolution happening right now, there's also, uh, the knowing that it takes time to deconstruct how these things live inside of us and takes time to discover new ways of being. And still, as Michael said, that doesn't mean that we don't have to do anything right now, that there are still actions that we can take, um, to be in the moment to create some positive shift. And what's happening in the collective right now. So I'm wishing all of you so well, and may you be infinitely supported and guided and feel tuned into your inner guidance about what role you have to play in this massive moment in history.